And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, welcome to this live edition of the Shamrock, uh, our long-awaited, slightly anticipated uh, version of the show. We, the last one that Matt and I did was, I think, the day before the Fiesta Bowl. Uh, so we'll see if this is tied to such a newsworthy event as Marcus Freeman's debut. But uh, welcome. I think we've got about 100 listeners already in the room. Um, if you want to ask a question, you can put it in the chat or I believe you can sort of raise your hand um, to get into the queue. I will. When I hit stage queue, I can call on you. I'll say, hey, welcome to the show. Um, the stage is yours, and you can ask your question that way. So let's get rolling. We've got the first question in the queue. I'm not sure who it was from, um, so maybe we'll stick with the chat for, for first. But uh, uh, <laughs> I guess, uh, Daniel K., I'm not sure if you're serious if uh, Sam Hartman is uh, can join us in the show, but he asked if he is in class, and uh, if anyone saw Notre Dame's official account, uh, they – a pick of him in the locker room with Caleb Smith, the Virginia Tech transfer, and the spring semester for Notre Dame started this week. Yeah, and this was another thing that we were asking. I think Matt put this out on Twitter. Is like, if you have suggestions for future guests of the Shamrock, um, please tag it at the end of your question uh, or put it in the chat. But, uh, yeah, anybody who wants to ask a question can enter it into the chat or hop in the queue, and uh, I'll call on you that way and We'll uh, share the stage that way. Uh, first up question, we're going to Daniel K. Hey, thanks for hosting. This is a lot of fun. Hey, I have a question about the defense. So there's been a lot of a lot made this week or the last few weeks about um, the lack of depth on the defensive line. And that's traditionally been a strength for Notre Dame's defense, while the secondary has typically been one of the weaknesses and the linebackers kind of land somewhere in between. But it seems like going into 2023, the linebackers are pretty strong. The secondary is pretty strong. So can they still have a decent defense with an okay defensive line? Yeah, Daniel, th- thanks for calling it. I think it's possible. I think when you look at the makeup of what this offense hopefully will look like come this fall, I, I, I think it's you know well not ideal to not have the, the kind of defensive line depth that they're used to having across the board. I, I think they could play complementary football a little bit better because I think that offense is going to be able to put up points on the board with pretty much everyone they go against if everything's firing on all cylinders. I mean, we saw what Sam Hartman has been able to do in years past at Wake Forest, uh, especially uh, with not a good defense at all during most of his time there in Winston-Salem. So, uh, well, not ideal. I, I, I do. Yeah, I had not thought of it in, in the context you put it in as far as, yeah, they're always strong up front. They're usually not that strong in the back end. That's going to be a role reversal likely this coming season. Uh, I, I do think it is something they can work around given the strengths of this roster elsewhere. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that I was trying to think about the last time Notre Dame had to win on offense. It was, you know, I don't, I don't want to give anyone like 
the shakes here, but you got to go back to the Brian Van Gorder days, probably 2015 when, you know, it was Kaiser stepping in for Zaire. Then you had fuller pro size, just like a completely ridiculous offensive line in terms of talent there. Um, I don't think Notre Dame is nearly that talented offensively, but you know, for the first time in a while, I think that they're going to go into games thinking, all right, how do we, how do we win on offense? How do we outscore some people? Cause they're, they're probably going to have to do that with, uh, the defense coming back, not every week, but um, I think holding opponents consistently to 20 points or less. I mean, they're going to have to have to probably win a game 38, 31 at some point um, this season. So I, d- I do think the defensive line is a big concern. It's been, but it's like, it's been a concern before. I remember writing on the, um, the I think it was the 2018 team or the 2019 team, excuse me, after they lose, Jerry Tillery and I remember talking to Brian Kelly about how like their big concern going in that season was, are we going to be able to get to the quarterback or not? And I think probably Marcus Freeman's concerns are similar and, you know, lo and behold in 2019, they did a pretty good job. They, you know, had somebody like Adeo Gondeje break out as a, as a fifth year senior, I believe. And, you know, that as much as we can look back on now and just assume like, well, yeah, of course he was going to be an NFL player going into that season. He was kind of a role guy. Um, you know, could Dalen Hill, Hayes stay healthy, you know, could Khalid Kareem take a step forward. So they're going to need some, um, some good developmental stories like that. I think for the defense to hold up, but, uh, ultimately I think it kind of is going to get back to like, can you outscore some people, um, before, if you're going to be out there. All right. Next up, one of the questions from the chat, maybe this is Adam R. because he was in the chat, he asked this question. He wanted to know, how does Notre Dame improve at the wide receiver position? And what is next What is next year's depth chart going to be there? Matt, what, what are your thoughts on that? Sorry, where, which one were we at? Uh, Adam R. asks, how does Notre Dame improve at the wide receiver position? And what's next year's depth chart going to be at wideout? Uh, I mean, how do you improve? I mean, a low bar to clear, even with the absence of Michael Mayer, I think that's still a pretty talented tight end room. Uh, I think you look at the way they've recruited that position. There's a reason Chancey Stuckey, despite being pretty green as a college football coach, has been in high demand and has been very, very popular uh, this offseason, particularly uh, when you look at the state he's recruited extremely well out of, the Lone Star State, Texas. So I think you're going to need one or two of those freshmen to shine early. Um, I think you're going to need someone to surprise who, who hasn't uh, shown that they're what they're capable of just yet. But I do think that position slowly but surely progressed down the stretch of the season. I, I think you saw Lorenzo Styles get better over the course of the season. You saw Jaden Thomas get better over the course of the season. I, I do wonder, looking at that group, you know, is there is there a veteran there, right? Like, is there, you know, even, you know, while not playing, Avery Davis provided a presence, I think, in that locker room as a captain and on that sidelines as a guy who had been through battles and who had been through injuries and had changed position after position and rolled with the punches every step of the way. I wonder if there's, you know, is Lorenzo Styles, I guess by class nature as a junior, he would be a veteran, but is there a guy who's going to come in there and has been there and done that, and a guy that everyone can look up to, the way T.J. Jones was for that group 10 years ago. Uh, that, that would be my, my, my number one question. I do like uh, the transfer coming in. 
from Virginia Tech. Um, when you look at his numbers relative to everyone else uh, on that offense last year in Blacksburg, it was striking. Uh, reminded me a lot of Michael Mayer relative to, to everyone else on Notre Dame's roster this past season. So I think the talent level w- will be enhanced. I think you know the quarterback play will be enhanced. Uh, I expect the numbers to be much better than they were last year. Uh, but but I, I'm looking to see who, who that number one slash veteran savvy leader guy can be uh, in 2023. I think, you know, my sort of intel talking to sources around the program is there is expectation that Tobias Merriweather is going to have a breakout sophomore season. And I I was sort of struck to hear that, like, the staff and, like, their confidence in Lorenzo Styles. I realized he had a disappointing sophomore year, but I think that they go into the situation – not really expecting, um, you know, sort of him to, to snap back to it. Um, so it's that, which is disappointing because I mean, I thought the way that he ended his freshman season gave you a lot of hope that his sophomore season had a chance to kick on. It never happened, but like so much comes down to Tobias Merriweather. Um, the staff privately feels like he's, he is a number one receiver. I think Caleb Smith sort of helps steady that ship quite a bit. Um, I don't know if he's going to be like, frontline number one guy, but he's reliable. I think he'll be very coachable. Um, you know, and I think he'll come in with the right attitude, which I think the receiver room was, was looking to have a little bit more of a maturity, a mature edge about it after losing uh, some veteran guys, whether they were productive or not. So I think that that position probably was, it was a weakness last year. I'm not saying it's going to be a strength this year, but it's got a chance to be, pretty good. Um, and if Tobias Merriweather breaks out, um, I think it's got maybe a, a chance to be very good. So that's, uh, that's encouraging. All right. Next question we've got from, uh, Catherine B at the bottom of the chat, longtime athletic reader, uh, uh, and high, high volume commenter, high quality commenter. And she wants to know, why did a Notre Dame player break a single box in the schedule release video? Matt, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I, I had many thoughts while watching that video. That was not one of them, although it might be the, the most tangible and realistic question that we should all have coming out of that. Uh, <laughs> leave it to Catherine B to ask the best question yeah. uh, we've got in a while. And that was, uh, it was interesting. Um, between the announcement landing in our inbox, a couple uh, readers slash listeners pointed out uh, Wallace Wade Stadium is not in South Bend, Indiana, and uh, Louisville no longer plays in Papa John's Cardinal Stadium. They took that guy's name off <laughs> off the uh, the banner about four years ago. Um, and then the the video itself, I didn't really follow it uh, at first. Obviously, with them opening in Dublin, I thought maybe there's going to be some kind of – it felt like internationally, um, and I thought there was going to be some kind of theme to go with each game. I thought I was uh, expecting kind of a Harry Potter vibe, and it just never yeah, materialized. I'm, I'm like – probably the most challenged person you'll ever meet in media, which is ironic. I get that. So it it might've gone right over my head, but yeah, I I kept sitting there waiting for, for, for something to pop at the end there. Uh, uh, Yeah. There were no broken boxes either. I mean, Pete, Pete, do you have a a good answer for that, for that one? (laughs) No, I just, I don't don't know what was hiding in the boxes. I mean, you go back to Mario brothers, there should have been coins in there and like to spin that forward with modern day college football. Maybe there was some NIL in those, in those boxes that Notre Dame just sort of bypassed. I don't know. It was, it was very, very confusing. I thought that, uh, I thought that video was going to go somewhere and then it just sort of kept going. It looked like the world's most boring video game, um, which I don't think was kind of the vibe they were going for. 
right, I'm going to hop up in the chat. We had Stephen O had a question. Does Harry Heastan deserve more criticism for the offensive line performance over the years, especially in the or over the year, especially in the four losses? Um, I don't know if criticism. I mean, I think maybe we we over, you know, in retrospect, overhyped his return, right? I, I mean, you made the comparisons, I think, to 2013, where, um, you know, that that 2013 Notre Dame team did, did a really good job. Or excuse me, 2012. 2013, they did a good job of protecting the quarterback. They did not do a great job around the football. 2012, uh, it was a bit of an uphill climb in his first year there. And I, I think we forget that everyone on this roster, save for the few who may have done some uh, on-the-side training <laughs> in season with him while Jeff Quinn was there, uh, were, were not exactly up to speed with, with the Harry Heastan experience. I, I think there was a very talented offensive line that got better as the season went along. We really saw, particularly in the Clemson game, them kind of establish their their authority, uh, and in the South Carolina game as well. Uh, I, I wouldn't. I, I don't have too much to criticize about the performance. I mean, certainly, you know, losing week two to Marshall, not being able to move the ball all that effectively against Ohio State, disappointing. Sure, I, I don't know how much of that falls on coaching, especially a new coach. When, when we look at the first couple games of the season, uh, m- maybe I'm wrong with that, Pete. How do you kind of evaluate? You know, that? it was. I remember after the Marshall game, sort of going back and looking at like, okay, well, how did the Harry Heastan era start the first time around? Because um, I think that we assumed when Harry Heastan came back that he would just sort of like pick up where they left off in 2017, and it it was like, oh. This is a good reminder. Like the offense actually was not good at all uh, at the beginning of the 2012 season when Eastan returned and it, you know, they blew the doors off Navy, which was I think felt like a bigger deal than it actually was. Um, I think that was you know that was not a great Navy team, and then you know they really struggle at home against Purdue. They beat Michigan State on the road, um, sort of like a Manti Teo game. They beat Michigan at home can't move the ball like their best rushing threat was a Tommy Reese quarterback sneak down by the goal line. So it's, I think it just sort of was a reminder that we all could have used that it takes a minute and it took a minute for Harry Heastan, who I think we all revere as like a great, great offensive line coach. But when he came to Notre Dame the first time around, they weren't awesome immediately. It took a lot of time. And I think it, it took a lot of time this year too. I think the Jared Patterson injury was unfortunate and I think you know, they probably overworked him in camp so that was you know kind of part of the reason it was unfortunate you know at, at Ohio State I think the game plan was sort of so unconventional it was hard to judge anything but I mean yeah the Stanford game I think everyone bombed that night um, for Notre Dame offensively so it was kind of hard for me to to rag on Stan specifically there but I, but I agree, like, the USC game, like, that was not a good USC defense by any measure, and I don't think the offensive line played well. I mean, they couldn't move them off the ball when they tried the Mitchapalooza package in the first half. And I really thought, like, that was going to be the game where they, they took what they did against Clemson, which was awesome, and they really sort of spun it forward and just blew uh, a mediocre defense off the field. It just it never happened. So I think, you know, he stands – do a little bit of critique or criticism or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I do think you, you got to acknowledge that, all right, the Clemson game, that was a very good def- front seven. And I remember talking to Reese the next week and even Tommy Reese was just like, 
I didn't think we were going to be able to run the ball like that. And the fact that Notre Dame could run the ball the way they did against Clemson, where so much of that comes down to, to he stand and the work that he did. Yeah, I mean, I remember talking to Clemson people after that as well, and they, they did not see that coming. I mean, they knew what Notre Dame was capable of. They did not see it playing out the way it does. But to your earlier point, I'm looking back now at Michigan, right, which, you know, the, the two-time reigning Joe Moore Award winning offensive line and both those years have been the first two years of the Sean Moore era there. And going back to 2021, uh, their first two conference games, uh, they barely beat Rutgers. They, they struggle a little bit uh, at Wisconsin, and they average less than three yards per carry um, in both of those games. And, and then they really just took off and ran it down everyone's throats really ever since then, the last two years. So um, I think it takes longer than, than any of us want to give it credit for in real time. To, to build a cohesive offensive line with a new voice at the head of the table. And I, I think that's, you know, because Harry Heastan has worn that Notre Dame hat before, uh, because he has Chris Watt at his side, a former player of his who's been there and coached there before, I, mm-hmm. I think there was a sense, at least among myself personally, of, all right, they got that fixed. That's not going to be a problem. And it wasn't a problem, but that doesn't mean everything's going to be clicking from week one. And again, it's very easy to forget they were without Jared Patterson, uh, which you know, even I forgot about. So you just mentioned it in that Ohio State game. I mean, PFF had an incredible stat about his the other day that I retweeted. It was uh, 1,688 pass blocking snaps this year, zero sacks allowed. Uh, hard to beat that if you're Jared Patterson. This yeah. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, we're going to move to – we had a question in the queue from Michael B. So uh, heads up, Michael B. Hopefully you have your static microphone turned off. I'm going to bring you to the stage right now. Michael B., you are live on the Shamrock. Go ahead with your question. All right, you guys can hear me. Yes. All right, first of all, I just want to answer Matt's question that he put out on Twitter. My favorite Shamrock guest, and maybe this is appealing to my degenerate side, is uh, Tim Murray. Vison's Tim Murray, yes. <laughs> or Brett Musburger. Yeah. Uh, I, for some reason, I really enjoyed that podcast. But my question is, um, with the schedule in 2023, it feels like there's a lot of letdown spots. So how do you see Marcus Freeman kind of traversing the 2023 schedule with a lot of big games, but also a lot of letdown spots, per se? I think that's, I mean, that's a really interesting question because I think that uh, with, if there is one thing that Marcus, I hope and think and believe he learned was like how to avoid the Marshall and the Stanford game. And I think that in some, I don't want to say it's more important than figuring out how to beat Ohio State and USC, but like 
you gotta you gotta win the games you're supposed to win before I think you go out and like, all right, how do we how do we upset the Buckeyes or you know Caleb Williams comes here and win those games? And I I think that you know for the those were like the Marshall and Stanford games. I think are, are two completely different animals for me. I think the Marshall game was Ohio State hangover. And I think the Ohio or the Stanford game, they really just sort of, they spit the bit and practice that week. I think that was, that was sort of a, a failure of the coaching staff to get a team ready to go, especially on the offensive side of the ball. But, you know, to their, to their credit, they learned from that. But I, I agree with like next year's schedule has some like sneaky parts to it. Um, going to Duke the week after Ohio state. Um, you know, I think we, uh, as much as we're a Clark Lee appreciation podcast, I mean, Mike Elko just wasn't here long enough for our podcast to appreciate him. Um, he is, he does <laughs> for, great for work us, down for us there. To have a podcast while he was still here. <laughs> yeah. I don't even think we were working for the athletic at that point. Uh, or at least I wasn't, but yeah, I, I think that the Duke game is tricky. Louisville, I think is not there. Um, in terms of like a trap game, but maybe that's what a trap game is. Something that you didn't see coming. Like at NC state, is that a little tricky without Devin Leary? I don't know. Um, so it's like, I, you know, Pittsburgh, I don't think getting ready for Phil Jakovic and his Instagram account is going to be too much of a challenge for Notre Dame, but um, you know, and then wake forest, if they had Sam Hartman, I think that could be very trappy, but it's, you know, they don't. So it, I think the Duke the Duke game is the one where I'm just like, hmm, you you would sort of circle that as like there Duke is not a big brand for football. It's on the road. They return a ton. They're well coached. And it's the week after Ohio State. So I feel like that that Duke game is the one where I'm just like, okay, well, that's gonna be a good test of Marcus Freeman and like, all right, do you know how to win the games you're supposed to win? even when they fall in spots on the schedule that are not very advantageous to you. Yeah, Pete, I think you've got three name opponents, right? Just as you did this past year, who, who you have circled and whoever won when that schedule gets released yesterday is looking at saying, all right, those are Notre Dame's three games are probably be underdogs in <clears throat> everything else they should win. Um, I think especially Notre Dame, since they don't play a conference schedule, we overthink ourselves and trying to circle a trap game and see oh which one could catch them off guard. Always. I don't know. If, I don't know if a human being in America would have circled Marshall and or Stanford on last year's schedule no. as quote unquote trap game. So it's hard to sit here and say oh this one could be dangerous because I think they all could be dangerous after last year. The part to me though that really that that I learned about yesterday that really sticks out to me is the fact you're opening with eight games in eight weeks after uh, an opener that's overseas. Um, I know it's Tennessee State in week two, uh, right after that Dublin game, but there is no time off. And at NC State, yeah, no Devin Leary, but they've got a Brendan Armstrong that Notre Dame didn't have to face a couple years ago. Um, after Central Michigan, it's Ohio State, at Duke, at Louisville, USC. Uh, those are four Power Five opponents, all of whom went bowling this year, two of whom damn near made the playoff this year. Um, and they're probably going to be favored in that game, in those games against Notre Dame. So I just think you need to, like, as a second-year head coach, you know, we've talked at nauseum about what did Marcus Freeman learn about being a first-year head coach? How did he manage the the rhythms of the season? How how come the team wasn't getting up for Navy and Marshall the way they were for for Clemson and and some bigger games? Um, I I have a different version of that question going into this year because you've got eight straight games – 
with the first coming overseas. Uh, in terms of just managing the, the mental and physical well-being of your program week in and week out uh, with some pretty big-name opponents throughout that stretch, I think that's the, the toughest juggling act when you look at handling this roster and, and handling this program, especially uh, when no one's going to give you a mulligan because you're not a first-year head coach anymore, uh, when no one's going to give you a mulligan because your starting quarterback got hurt in the second game last year. You've got a proven starter right now. At least we think it'll be that in, in Sam Harbin. Uh, that's going to be the hardest part for me. Uh, I think, you know, in the heat of the moment, having two bye weeks in the back half of the season, I'm sure will be welcome and will work to Notre Dame's advantage, but it really would have helped to have one of those among the first eight weeks of the season because that is not uh, an advantageous place to be if, if you're Notre Dame, in my opinion. Yeah, Anthony T. in the chat asked about our take on the bye weeks of the schedule. We and Matt and I, you've talked chatted about this. Like, not, not ideal uh, by any stretch, I don't know if there's a ton Notre Dame could have done about it, but I, I'm sure they would love to play at Louisville the week after USC and have that bye on October 7th and have Louisville on October 21st. But it's, you know, you can't always get exactly the schedule you want. So that, that makes it complicated. All right. We're going to jump next in the queue. Ryan B. Ryan B. I'm calling you to the stage right now uh, to ask your question on the Shamrock. Go ahead, Ryan. Um, going back to Matt's question about, kind of the favorite guests that you've had on. I really liked uh, Ryan Clark um, having like a former player's perspective and um, getting like a broadcaster's perspective on the game with like how much preparation that uh, goes into preparing to call a game. Yeah, I really, I, okay. yeah, go ahead. What was your question? I, but I totally agree. I think having the, that sort of behind the scenes take, whether it be like, I think we've had Greg McElroy on the show before. Like I, I really like those guests because they, they give you a different uh, idea of what's going on with the, the, the team. Then, you know, we get covering them week to week. For sure. And then um, just a question I had was about the quarterback situation, like with Sam Hartman coming in for a year. Um, do you see like Buckner or Steve Angeli potentially leaving um, this year? And then, after Hartman plays a year, you're kind of left. Um, if one of those, if Angeli or Buckner leaves, you're kind of left with um, other quarterbacks that, um, like freshmen or things like that, that are coming in. So basically, do you see like Angeli or Buckner potentially leaving with Hartman coming in? I, I'd be surprised if Buckner did. I, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about Steve Angeli and his background, the way I virtually everyone. Uh, around Notre Dame knows about Tyler Buckner because we've all been following his every move for the last five years or so. Um, I, I'd be, I would be surprised if Tyler Buckner left. Um, at, at this point, I'd probably be surprised if Steve Angeli left, although I guess we'll see how the spring goes and you know, everyone's going to eventually make their own decisions based on the way things shake out after 15 spring practices. I, regardless, I'm um, looking forward to next year without Hartman, assuming you still have one if not both of those guys in the fall, you'll likely still have Kenny Minchie going into his second year. You have CJ Carr coming in as a freshman in, in 2024. Uh, and then who knows what the waiver wire will, will essentially bring in, in that regard or, or could be available based on the dominoes that fall after next season around the country. I mean, who would have thought all the movement that happened this year just within the ACC alone at the quarterback position uh, could happen over a year's time. And, and so I think that's going to become kind of par for the course and the norm in college football for the foreseeable future. Um, it's going to be a numbers game in that regard. And I think that's why Notre Dame's in a pretty strong position 
from the the makeup of their quarterback room, regardless uh, of how this particular upcoming season plays out. Yeah, I I don't know enough about Angeli either, but I mean, certainly the numbers game would you, lead you to believe that he he, especially if Buckner's still here, and I expect Buckner still be here, that Angeli would have a hard decision to make because from a, I think, perception standpoint and like, look, a lot can change between now and the season. I think that Notre Dame likes Minchie as a prospect more than I like Angeli in terms of like when they showed up to Notre Dame. Um, and I think that while Angeli did, you know, was a good reserve and scout team quarterback and, you know, was up with the varsity there at the end, and they were, they were happy about it. I don't think that there was anything, there was no point where you're like, who's going to start the Gator Bowl, Steve Angeli or Tyler Buckner. So if that gap still exists, I don't know how Angeli could close it with Buckner, whether Buckner's playing or not. Um, and so then you go with Buckner in 2024. And after that, you know, I think you, you got to know what you have in Minchie at that point. You're curious what you have in CJ Carr at that point. He'll be on the team, um, you know, at this point next year for the spring semester of 2024. But uh, Angeli's in a tough spot. I mean, but like how many times have we seen this in the past? whether it be, you know, Ian Book or, heck, even Tommy Reese. Like, you you ha- you perceive the quarterback position one way when these kids show up and then they get here and you work with them a little bit and then you perceive it completely differently. So it's kind of hard to, hard to say with a lot of confidence what's going to happen a year from now down the road. All right, we're going to try to go back to Kevin MC. Kevin, I'm calling you to the stage right now uh, to ask your question live on the channel. Bad go connection. ahead. All good. Better sure. than static the vo- or whoever that one guy was. <laughs> Adam R. Probably Redenberg. With the volatility we see in college landscape with the transfer market, all the players coming in and out, and we saw this year Notre Dame picking up a couple players on each facet of the side of the ball, do you think that door is shut now, or do you think they'll revisit in the spring to add even fur- to, to further lengthen the roster? I think that they, I mean, as Marcus Freeman talks regularly, right, he's always talking about enhancement and, you know, how are you always trying to enhance your roster? So, and I I think that he probably learned a lesson a little bit about like how, how much you need to be on that last year when they didn't take a quarterback or they didn't take a receiver. So uh, I would, you know, you go back to Nick McLeod joined in summer before he was part of the, the 2020 team. Uh, Chris Smith joined in summer from Harvard last year as a grad transfer. So just because the transfer portal closed this week for the winter period doesn't mean that you cannot go back and add somebody in the summer next year. And I think particularly the defensive tackle, that's the position where they could find a guy and maybe need to find a guy the most who's, you know, kind of like a Caleb Williams from Virginia Tech, but a defensive tackle who's played power five football, um, is reliable. You know what you're going to get. Maybe you're not looking at him as like a, a surefire NFL guy, but if he was, if he was a surefire NFL guy, he'd already be in the NFL draft. But to find a power five defensive tackle in the spring, I think will be a priority. Um, I think offensively, they're pretty good. Maybe a, maybe there's an offensive guard that pops loose somewhere. I know that Notre Dame has kicked the tires on that idea a little bit, but um, mostly I feel like. Interior defensive line, if you can get a guy in during the spring transfer window into the summer, I think Notre Dame would welcome that. Yeah, I, I think to Pete's point, you talk about enhancements and improvements. Building a comfortable roster right now is is a 24-7, 12-month-year proposition. It's not simply signing a recruiting class and adding 
one or two people in January from the portal. I, I mean, to go back to your point, I mean, even K Madden from Marshall transferred in the summer of 2021 as well. Uh, Pre portal era, you know, Ever Colson waits till the end of the spring to, to leave their name for Florida State. So I think in the same vein of where you see a mass rush of people entering the portal um, at the end of their regular seasons and, and finding new homes once they realize, you know, what the next season will look like for their current teams. Marcus Freeman and his staff will have exit interviews or, or the equivalent of exit interviews with his roster at the end of the spring. And, and there'll be people I'm sure who are coming and going and, and there'll be position enhancements that they're looking to, to shore up and reinforce, you know, that are already on the radar and, and may, perhaps new ones that could come on the radar, uh, depending on how the end of the spring goes. By the way, Kevin, you sound like you're a New Yorker. I wonder if I'm accurate in my uh, assessment of that. <laughs> As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Uh, let's see, next question going to Michael O. Michael O, I'm calling you to the, or the stage right now, and you're live. Go ahead with your question. Best guess so far, I like uh, Jordan Cornette. Obviously fits with mm-hmm. the whole uh, bald guys as well. So not anymore. Yeah. So, not anymore. Oh, he's he's grown his hair out. Yeah, he's oh, he's, he's on our uh, shit list. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask, um, what do you think Notre Dame can do to be more proactive about NIL rather than reactive? Because I feel like that's a problem. Ooh, Matt, I'll let you take this one first. This is a this is a, I think we could talk. We could do an entire show just on this topic. Yeah, I've got a lot of pushback, especially lately, from people in and around Notre Dame about some of the NIL uh, quote-unquote takes I've had on this very show. And and my biggest, you know, criticism, if you will, and it remains my biggest, you know, kind of criticism and question of them is essentially communication. Um, You know, I'm with most, you know, most people have come out, especially recently, 
speaking about NIL and have said something to the effect of a lot of the numbers you hear out there are fake or a lot of people are bluffing and everyone's lying. I, I agree with, with, with all of that. I mean, short of the, the, the Rashada $13 million fiasco going on at Florida, which I don't think is a, a, a type of water Notre Dame needs to be swimming in right now anyway. Um, you know, I don't think the numbers and, and, and the, the, the promises out there are everything that we're all reading and hearing about. But I do think to be, you know, to be completely dismissive of NIL <clears throat> would be foolish as well. Um, as far as proactive, reactive, um, you know, I wouldn't say Notre Dame is either right now because I don't think, you know, when I hear the word reactive, I think, oh, this school is doing this. We're, how are we going to counter that? I'm not sure Notre Dame's viewing themselves in the context of other schools right now either because they really like to, to operate, you know, with, with their own, within their own mantra, within their own kind of principles. And, and that's admirable. And I think Notre Dame shouldn't stray too far from, from what makes them unique. But what makes them the Santorini of college football, to, to steal a line from a, a famous guest we once had on the show. But um, my, 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 my beef, if you will, in Notre Dame has long been, um, you know, basically the question you had, the question I have, the question all of us have is, what is your NIL plan? How are you going, co- going to communicate that NIL plan to uh, most importantly fans, but, but but to media, to recruits, and publicly because you know they're, they're taking care of their roster above board pretty pretty well from from, from my understanding. I, I don't think that's an issue. Um, you know, if you don't want to get into a bidding war with recruits, I, I can get that. But when Marcus Freeman gets up there on signing day and is saying, you know, we'll, we'll do nil as well as anyone, well, I want to hear what you're doing. Um, I want to hear Jack Swarbrick or Marcus Freeman or someone. Uh, who's a major representative of this university and this football program, put out a statement or a letter to fans saying, hey, here's our official collective. Here's what we're doing. Here's how you can donate. I mean, Michigan, uh, which, again, operates very similarly for the most part to Notre Dame. Now, the last month mm-hmm. might have Notre Dame fans shaking their head at that. I would be right with them because there's a lot of drama going on in Ann Arbor right now off the field. But uh, yeah, they're, they're Valiant, they're, they're, their main collective, put together a one more year fund, which is as transparent as humanly possible as far as its MO, which is to raise money to keep the draft eligible players in school for one more year. Uh, they offered a suggested donation of $144 to commemorate the 144th team in Michigan football history. And look what happened. They got Blake Corum, Cornelius Johnson, and a couple other guys on that offense, big time players to stay and make a run, in their case, hopefully a national championship next year, which I think they are capable of doing if everything is functional there, which it doesn't seem to be right now off the field. But, um, you know, there, there's a, a line in their kind of mission statement that quotes Bo Schembechler, except it says, those who stay will be paid. <laughs> um, I think I'd see the day where Michigan, of all schools, is kind of pounding their chest about that. But they are. And right now it's hard to argue against that working. Um I don't think you're going to see that happen for, you know, a first round quarterback like a CJ Stroud. Um, although, yeah, out of Pete, did you see the, the the drama with that on Monday? With uh, was it shot right. sign? Like, oh my god! I, as a guy, and I, I realize I may be like pissed off half our listeners here. I've already pissed off plenty of people in my family when I voice this opinion. I hate gender reveal parties uh, to tease your fan base with the idea of the number one quarterback coming back by saying I got big news coming and instead it's a gender reveal party. And oh, by the way, Cardale Jones is helping me with it, not CJ Stroud. That was a complete error in judgment. Uh, it's going to be a tough one to come back from <laughs> if you're a member of that family with Ohio State right now. So um, I, I, I think there have been more examples of how not to do this than how to do it so far. Uh, but but I, I just want to see, you know, as, as an outsider, as a fan, as a media guy, you name it, 
I just want to see Notre Dame say something, tell me something publicly about what I can do to support current and potentially prospective student athletes and show us that you're serious about building a national championship roster the way, to my knowledge, every single power five school in the country has had a coach or, or an electorate to come out there and, and publicly support so far. Yeah, I agree. It's a, you know, there's communication elements there. Cause I, I think some of the stuff Notre Dame is doing is smart and sustainable. I mean, with fund I've written on that with, you know, Brady Quinn and Tom Mendoza and like there are, the team is having three fund events this weekend. I think Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, I think it's the Boys and Girls Club of South Bend and Cultivate, which is a food rescue. And I'm not sure if the last one is the Center for the Homeless or the YMCA. But, I mean, the players make money off that and do good work at the same time. They're not – and it's the way Notre Dame's approach with fund, at least, has been like every player is profiting the same. So, you know, hypothetically, let's just say there's like a $5,000 event like – the starting quarterback and the fourth team left guard make the same amount. Um, you know, I don't think that's definitely not the true, true everywhere. And then I think Notre Dame's pitch beyond that. And I think this is where they, they could communicate it better um, and get out in front of this more is like, if you're Michael Mayer or heck, even if you're Tyler Buckner last year as the starting quarterback, like those I believe are sort of like six figure positions. Um, if you're like a dude, like Marcus Freeman state states it as like, if you're a dude, like you're going to make NIL stuff, but you got to be a dude here first. Um, and that's tough because like, let's just say Justin Scott, five-star defensive tackle from Chicago, the sort of recruiting rankings industry felt like he was going to go to Notre Dame commit on, I think January 31st. Then Georgia gets involved. Like now it's not sure when he's going to come in. Like that's, that's a tough situation. We have somebody that is naturally leaning towards you, perhaps, um, you know, Keon Keeley, Peyton Bowen, for examples for last cycle. And then you can't figure out a way to make them believe that, okay, the money will be here. If you come to Notre Dame and play well, like you'll get something by being on the roster because of sort of fund and what they're doing there. But, I think Notre Dame needs to have a little, maybe a little bit more proof of concept with guys like Mayer, or Kyle Hamilton, or Tyler Buckner. And I think the more and more they have of that, the more um, the more that then they will be able to go to recruits and say like, "Hey, why don't you have a conversation with Mayer about what NIL was like for him? Why don't I have a conversation with Hamilton about what NIL was like for him? Because all of these guys believe they'll be a dude when they come to Notre Dame, um, you know, and especially at the high end five star guys. So. I think communication is a big part of like getting the word out on that, whether it be to fans or just getting the word out on to recruits about here's what fund is. And also if you're Michael Mayer or Kyle Hamilton, this is what can, this is what you can do at Notre Dame too. All right. Next up, Kevin M C we'll try you again and see if we can get a listener back to the stage. All right, Kevin, I see you. Hi, I want to say, uh, well, my favorite guest was, um, Mike Tirico and I think Mike Mayock, who was really good in the booth, would be a really good guest to get because he seems to have a real in touch on player personnel. Um, my second question would be in terms of the coaching staff, um, with all the activity, we see all the opening OC jobs and everything in the NFL. Um, what's your bet over under on Tommy Reese staying? Go for it, man. Yeah. Uh, he's still here now. The whole staff's still here now. I would expect. Back that, I mean, if you're asking me to handicap it, I'd say more likely than not he stays. Um, but, you know, 
the Miami went after him pretty hard last year. I want to say into February. Um, the NFL cycle is what it is right now. I know the Rams have an OC opening. Um, you know the, the the Cardinals, the Panthers, the Broncos, the Colts. I believe that's all right now as far as head coach openings in the NFL. Chargers have an OC opening. Um, I, I think there's still a number of dominoes to fall, and could that affect Tommy Reese and Notre Dame? I do think it could. I mean, no one expects Bill O'Brien to be at Alabama next year. Uh, everyone expects him to be in the NFL. That job is not open yet, but when, if and when that job comes open, uh, that's a really big college OC job open. A lot of people expect Josh Gaddis to leave Michigan. Or excuse me, to leave Miami. Miami yeah. um, whether that's to go back to Penn State and coach receivers, whether that's to go back to Alabama and be the OC again, I'm not so sure. But you know, if Miami opens again, that's a job that's already made one run at Tommy Reese and a coach who's made two runs at him at two different stops so far. Um, if Alabama's open, I mean, Nick Saban either has his guy who he wants, who he's going to get, or he has a series of guys who he's going to bring in for interviews, and he's either going to be serious about hiring you or he's going to try to steal your stuff. And uh, Tommy Reese's predecessor, along with several others, <laughs> as OC and Notre Dame, can tell you firsthand about that one. So I would say it's more likely than not that he's back. I mean, I don't think he's looking to leave because if he was looking to leave, he would have – I mean, he's, he's good and he's connected. He would have found a really good job by now. Uh, but but you never know how things will shake out and, and whether Nick Saban, Mario Cristobal, or someone at the NFL level, you know, puts a problem and offer he can't refuse. Yeah, I, I feel like he'll be back, especially with the Hartman stuff. I've been yeah, so. sort of fooled by coaches before, but, like, I think this is the this to me is like kind of a money year for Reese. Um, you have the quarterback that you wanted, the most talented guy that you've coached. You know, all due respect to Jack Conan Ian Book there, but a guy that can stretch the field and let you do some things creatively on offense that you just haven't been able to do before. So, I would expect Reese back. You know, it's I wouldn't say it's like a loaded loaded offense, but I mean, you got two tackles like that, running backs like that. Uh, Promising group of receivers, good tight ends, uh, but most importantly, you got the quarterback figured out for the in a, in a way that you haven't before. So, I would expect this staff to return. I mean, I think Matt mentioned earlier in the show about Chancey Stuckey's pretty popular guy. It's, you know, I, I don't anticipate him going anywhere either. Um, you know, but they they have some coaches that are wanted, and that's that's a healthy thing. That's what that's what you want your staff to look like. All right, next up, we're going to try to go to Luis F. Luis, I'm calling you to the stage right now. Hey, uh, Pete, you talked a lot last year kind of about the learning curve for Freeman being a first-year, first-time head coach, right? And uh, I was just kind of curious, looking back now, what do you think some of those things were that he had to learn, and how does that translate moving forward? No, I think that's, that's kind of like the question um, about this offseason and you know where next year goes. And I, you know, I think for the first one was – the Marshall game was like, I, I do think Notre Dame let Ohio State beat them twice. They put so much energy and effort into that Ohio State game uh, and then had, you know, this is not an excuse, but like they lost a day of prep because their, I believe their charter plane got grounded in Columbus and, you know, they, they didn't get back until either late, I think late Sunday. So they sort of missed time in terms of prep. Um so that was a negative, but I think that the the Stanford game is, I think probably where Freeman learned the most because at that point in the year, I believe that um, 
you know, Drew Pine was just sort of starting to figure it out. Um, Reese is like a, a pretty aggressive coach in practice. And I think at that point, like there was maybe a miscommunication about like what Reese wanted and the levers he was pulling with Pine in the offense and then what ultimately came to pass. And, you know, I think Reese would admit it like that was not his best week of prep. But um, I think for Freeman, in a lot of ways, looked at the offense that week and it was just like, all right, you guys – you guys handle the offense. I'm I'm helping out Golden with the defense, um, opposed to maybe giving a little bit more oversight to both sides of the ball. Not that he needs to meddle or tell Reese what plays to call, other than like, hey, I want to be aggressive here, or let's take a shot there. That's fine. But um, I think one of the things Freeman figured out is like to be a head coach, you really you can't focus on one side of the ball more than the other. And I think for the first half of the season, at least um, he focused a lot more on defense. So I think that's, that's probably a big learning um, part of the learning process for him. I don't know, Matt, what, uh, what stands out to you about something that uh, Freeman learned from year one to year two. It's got, it's got to be just managing the, the, the day-to-day highs and lows of being the narrative head football coach. I know that kind of goes without saying, but you know, he, he won the off season, right? I mean, he mm-hmm. he was a hit with recruits. He was a hit with the media. He was a hit with fans. He did every single speaking engagement you could think of. Um, he he made, broke bread with all the right people in and around the university um, and like everything else. Okay, that's great. <clears throat> now, can you actually coach a football game as a head coach at the most famous university there is? And, uh, you know, I, I come out of this year um, – very, very convinced that he can do that, even without the bumps. I mean, you've, you, even with the bumps. I mean, you've, you've made the, the point multiple times, Pete, of, hey, if you're Notre Dame football and Brian Kelly's leaving and you're going to hire a 36-year-old first-time head coach to replace him, you've got to be able to stomach the learning curve that's going to come with this. Now, mm-hmm. I, I don't think, at least publicly, I don't think that learning curve is going to go beyond year one. I, I, I think, you know, if he loses to Tennessee State or Duke or someone next year, uh, not to put Duke in the same conversation with Tennessee State, but you know what I'm getting at, uh, you know, he's not going to get a pass the way he does at the end of this year. I think uh, for him to get them to be playing their best ball, uh you know, for the most part, down the stretch of the season, the USC game notwithstanding, for him, for that Clemson performance to come together and to, for it to come together so soon after a Stanford performance that really threatened, I think, to to, to break the whole foundation of everything, especially with a first-year head coach, um, I thought was very, very impressive. Uh, you know, now, now you've got to you've got to hit the singles this year, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, okay, you've proven at your best, you can compete with the best and, and dominate some of the best in, in the form of Clemson this past year. Uh, you've got to take care of the Marshalls. You've got to take care of the Stanford. So you can't be um, screwing around for a half against, uh, uh, who was it, Navy uh, uh, in the second <laughs> there half. There were a few year. halves where they screwed yeah, around for a half. Say, they all kind of blended. Uh, Cal, Navy, who are we talking about? Um, <laughs> well, I don't know if screwing around was the case with Cal. I think they were, you know, they had a new quarterback and, they, yeah. they were in desperation mode at that point. Um, but, but I just think they're, uh, you know, they need to take care of business this year in the games they're supposed to take care of business. Of. That's something I think everyone took for granted during the Brian Kelly era. Uh, but, but you know, I, I, after the season, you know, I heard some variation of, of this line from multiple people within the Google. I'm sure you did too. It was, you know, we appreciate having a boss like Marcus Freeman this year, especially after some of the downturns. Like it, 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 and, we've seen first-year coaches, we've seen veteran coaches, Brian Kelly among them. When something goes wrong, um, 
you know, you start questioning or, or hearing about cracks in the foundation. I mean, I go back to that Michigan game in 2019 and, you know, how broken that team seemed going into Virginia Tech and how they damn near blew it against the very bad Virginia Tech team that year. Um, I, I don't think there was anything even remotely – I wouldn't say remotely, but I, I don't think that was as close to happening as it probably should have been this year, uh, given the circumstances at play. So uh, I, I think that's probably where he's learned the most. He's going to have to spend much of the offseason kind of – uh, figuring out how to apply those lessons in a practical manner in, in the upcoming season. Uh, but, but I definitely think that's an encouraging sign if you're nerding brass right now. All right. As we sort of get towards the end, we've got a, a question from our chat. Matt, I don't know if uh, you're plugged in enough on recruiting to answer it, but we'll try it anyway from Sarah G. She wants to know, quarterback CJ Carr might be Notre Dame's best recruiter on staff at the moment. Which player in the last decade plus has been the best recruiting recruit in your hmm. opinion? So I feel like every I'm, every class sort of has, has one, yeah, one yeah, or yeah. two. I mean, I don't remember Jalen Smith being over like Jalen Smith was because he was Jalen Smith. Like he right. committed to Notre Dame over Ohio State before that 2012 season when people were wondering if Notre Dame football could ever be really good again, and, and that you know coupled with the obvious on field success that year um, was like the ultimate stamp of approval and validation for every big prospect across the country. Of oh look, Notre Dame's back. We can go there and win big games now. Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, there are definitely about a few, especially when I was there every day for six years. Um, Pete, who are you thinking of? Well, I mean, even like Drake Bowen in the current class would would stand out to me. I think that he definitely did a lot of good work in recruiting. Um, This will sound weird because he decommitted, um, but Marquis Stepp was a running back who was committed (laughs) running for a long time. Um, And then did he he decommit or did they drop him? Yeah, that was more of the drop decommit. Um, and honestly, like Drew Pine was really good in this regard. I think when you have a quarterback who's got uh, a personality that people want to gravitate towards, um, Drew Pine was one of those guys. Um, that's that's very beneficial. I mean, you can get a lot of a lot of good mileage out of that if you have guys that hold the class together. And when they're quarterbacks, and when they're highly rated quarterbacks, I think that that's sort of got a multiplying effect on. You know your recruiting class and the ability to keep guys in it. So it'll be interesting to sort of see how CJ Card does. Because I mean, look, there are other classes in the country that have guys as highly rated and as with as personalities like CJ Carr. So it's not like Notre Dame is alone there. But when you have that, uh, when you have that at your back, it's a real positive. All right, let's jump back to the queue. We've got Nathan P. I'm going to call you to the stage right now. Let's see if technology is on our side and Nathan P can join the show. There he is. I see Nathan P. Nathan, go ahead with your question. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, thanks again for taking my question, guys. I'm just curious in a, in a world where uh, NIL, you know, didn't exist or wasn't influencing kids and things like that. um, Where would you see Marcus Freeman and his charismatic nature and the way that he's believing in Notre Dame and the way he's selling the school, where would you place him in a power rankings of recruiters as head coaches? Uh, I, I, I have the, the, the cynical view of this. NIL to me just means now it's legal. So I don't think things are that different than they've always been. <laughs> therefore, I don't think – I think he's really good as is. I, I don't think it would have been that much different in a different era. In fact, I would say having a young, charismatic, progressive guy as a face of your program probably benefits you, especially a place like Notre Dame that, let's face it, can be more stodgy than not at times, uh, probably benefits them more because I think he's a guy who's going to push to get some things done there that previous regimes probably wouldn't have had either the the wherewithal or the foresight 
or really the time or energy to do. I, I could be wrong there. Time will tell. I think the initiative of the head coach is a big part of that too, man. But well, that's what I'm saying. Like I, I yeah. think he's his makeup is one that, hey, we're Notre Dame. We shouldn't settle for second in anything. But these are the rules. Let's go and, and, and you know, stretch them to our favor. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think – I don't think that's any different than it would have been a pre- or post-NIL era because I just think the way business is getting done right now is kind of how it's always been getting done. It's just kind of all above the table right now. Yeah, I I do think if NIL was not around – uh, and that those that kind of funding was not as accessible as it is. That among Keon Keeley, Peyton Bowen, or Dante Moore, I think Notre Dame would have signed one of those guys at least. Maybe they would have signed two. I don't know if they would have got all three. But um, I do think that NIL has is made it harder. Um, but in a lot of ways, recruiting is still a relationships game. But I don't. I don't think these a lot of these kids automatically run to the highest bidder. Um, I don't think it's as cutthroat as maybe it's made out to be like, you still have to go to a school that you feel like is a good fit um, to play for a coach that you feel like you connect to. Um, Those relationships still matter, I guess is the kind of the point I'm trying to make there. Uh, And I think Marcus Freeman is like an elite recruiter at building relationships. I mean, like when I, asked him in his introductory press conference about his recruiting philosophy, whether you're going to be a, a CEO of recruiting or more sort of hands-on. And he said that like, I'm cheating Notre Dame if I'm not the lead recruiter on everybody we're after. Like he walked that walk. And I, I think that that matters a lot. Um, it doesn't guarantee you success. Like I thought it was very cool that one of the first calls Marcus Freeman made on FaceTime after he got the head coaching job at Notre Dame was actually to Peyton Bowen because they knew how important he was as a safety. So I think he finds his finds creative ways to put himself out there. Um, and I think ultimately that that will pay dividends for Notre Dame. It's not a guarantee, but um, it definitely puts you in a better position than you would otherwise. All right, let's maybe we can wrap up here with Tommy G as the last question from the Q. Tommy G, I'm attempting to call you to the stage right now. We'll see if it works. Hey guys, what do you think about the possibility of Buckner having a red zone package next year, just mainly using his legs and probably limiting him throwing the ball? I I could see that very much being in the cards. I mean, you keep him engaged, you keep him involved, uh, you you let him know he's a big part of not just the future of Notre Dame football, but the 2023 Notre Dame football team and all the... uh, all the goals and strides they hope to make next year. I mean, I, I could, I, I could see it even being beyond that. Now, I do. I think they're going to change quarterbacks every game or have different, um, you know, games where Sam Hartman's rolling and they're going to take him out just for the sake of getting Tyler Bunker involved. No, but I think it'd be foolish not to prepare something for that guy, given how integral he is to Notre Dame football. And the fact that as we see damn near every single year of Notre Dame football, at least since I've been covered it, uh, you need multiple quarterbacks to make it through a season. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that he'll be involved, but I think that his package in the offense hopefully will be a little bit more like exactly what Sam Hartman is going to run with maybe a little bit more quarterback read or quarterback run. I don't think it would look like it did in 2021 where it was, all right, Buckner's in the game. Hmm. They're running it. Cone's in the game. They're passing it. Like, I don't think that – I don't think that – Buckner wants to do that. I don't think Reese wants to do that. I don't think Freeman wants to do that. I don't think that's healthy. 
for a junior quarterback, but you get, you have to keep him engaged. Um, he's too valuable to the operation not to. All right. Now this will be the, the last question for real. Sarah G, I'm going to call you to the stage now. Um, hopefully that uh, our tech continues to work. Sarah G, but I do not see her up in the queue. So I think we might have a uh, an Android issue. So Sarah G, I, I apologize for that. Um, Dan, I, and I, guess I, Daniel I K. see her. Well, I see her, her one question saying, just be a chaos agent here. Should we have waited on Luke Fickle? My answer is no. What's yours? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I'm not, you know, I, I was thinking about that actually, um, you know, when, when all the, you know, Ohio state loses to Michigan this year and people are saying, Oh, is Ryan day going to leave for the NFL? This, that I'm thinking, boy, would, wouldn't it be like Luke Fickle's lock that like his two dream jobs, they're even Ohio state open at times where he's like basically unable, unable to, to get involved with them. Um, don't think they should have waited for Luke Fickle. Um, he and I have had some very candid discussions amongst ourselves about the search itself. I mean, I always thought it should have been Marcus Freeman, and I, I stand by that. I thought the process by which uh, they, they went about hiring him and securing the staff around him first was uh, a little faulty, in my opinion, especially with the way things almost shook out last offseason. Uh, but no, I, I, I don't think they should have waited for Luke Fickle. I think when you've got a good thing going, the way Notre Dame does, the way Michigan does, if they were to have lost Jim Harbaugh, you don't necessarily want to, um, you know, rewrite the book, so to speak, and, and start from scratch all over again when you know you're going to have a good team and a good culture and good program coming back uh, th- this coming past year the way they did. But so it's a good yeah, question. Yeah, I really think it's a like lot of, a lot of people around college football have that question. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it was a popular sort of industry question about like, did Notre Dame rush this? And like, in some ways, they rushed it, but I still, still got the right guy, if that makes sense. Um, but you know, if you had hesitance or any hesitancy about Freeman, then I think you would have had to have waited for Fickle. But Matt and I have spent time around Marcus. Like it's it's easy to sort of see why players love playing for him. And I don't I don't mean that like any he makes a good first impression and that's it. Like he keeps making a good impression on you. Um it's not just sort of a one off when it comes to him and and sort of the reasons why I think that he clicks well with college players, clicks well with alumni. Like I think you talk to people in sort of the college football industry. They're very impressed with him. Um, it's, it, he's a very likable guy. Um, for I think everybody around Notre Dame, I think that that served him well during, uh, the course of the season. So, all right, we'll, we will wrap it up there. If you listeners, guys, gals like sort of the live room format, I think we'd be open to trying this a little bit more in season. Um, or, you know, we can do another one in the off season for sure. But, uh, something a little bit, you know, bold is like a post game, uh, shamrock once or twice where we get, uh, sort of feedback directly from you guys on the questions that you have. Um, that would be a fun version of the podcast too, but we'll definitely do this again. Um, more than once every year. Um, and it's fun to sort of like hear from our listeners and kind of what you guys are curious about in, formats other than my mailbag every other week so for matt i'm pete thanks for being with us on the on this live edition of the shamrock and we will definitely do this again too thanks for being with us